Hello and welcome to a History of the King James Bible Podcast. I'm your host Garth Noyes and this is episode 23. It has been almost five years since I published episode 22, which was the final episode of the series. And yes, I did say the final episode since I thought I would not be revisiting the series, but here we are. In this episode, I'm talking to Nathan Noyes. Now, Nathan is a minister of the gospel, and he also heads up Glove Box Bible Ministry, and they can be found at gloveboxbible.org. That's all one word, gloveboxbible.org. I invited Nathan to come onto the show to talk about the impact of the King James Bible on the language of the English-speaking world. So without further ado, let's go to my discussion with Nathan. All right, well, I'd like to welcome to the show Nathan. Um, Nathan and I have been talking uh, privately for a couple of years now, and um, I'm just so pleased to have him on the show. Nathan, welcome to A History of the King James Bible Podcast. Um, this is going to be episode 23, and I haven't recorded a, an episode for this series for, for many years, but I'm so glad that you've agreed to come onto the show. So, uh, Nathan, would you come on and tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Absolutely. Well, first of all, um, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. It's, it's definitely an honor to be uh, invited. Um, I'm a Christian. I'm a Bible believer. And when I say that, I mean I believe that we have the King James Bible, the plenary, inerrant, infallible, uh, preserved word of God in the English language, and that's in the King James Bible. Um, I'm a very blessed man. I'm married. I have two wonderful children. Uh, I minister at Gethsemane Church in Pekin, Illinois. Um, I run uh, a KJB 1611 Facebook page, um, and I work full-time at a dealership, uh, a Ford dealership. I've been there for over 23 years now, and uh, it's uh, we've been blessed there. We have a, a church ministry. Actually, our church has a ministry with dealerships called Glovebox Bible, um, where we're pri- privileged to uh, place a King James Bible, uh, not the whole thing, just two books, John and Romans, uh, in the glove box of every vehicle at our dealership and several others. What the Gideons are to uh, hotel rooms, uh, that's what we are to car dealerships. So if you have any listeners out there that know of any car dealerships, um, they can go to www.gloveboxbible.org and get in touch with us because it's a free ministry to dealerships. Um, so uh, that's that's kind of who, who I am and, wh- and what we do. So It's a wonderful ministry. I know um, I was impressed to hear about that a couple of years ago. Nathan, when you told me um, that's part of what you do uh, as part of your role at work, it's just I just find it fascinating uh, because there is absolutely nothing like that that I've heard of um, in this country. So uh, I think it's a great thing. Um, Nathan, we're going to talk about the uh, impact on the language of the King James Bible. Uh, that's why I brought you on board to talk about. I just want to introduce that topic by way of talking a little bit more in general about the general impact so that we get some idea because I want to hone down to the, uh, the, you know, the impact on the language. But this book that we're talking about, we could say with great confidence that it's the most influential version of the most influential book in the world in what is now its most influential language. Now, that's a big call. People, you can go away and investigate that for yourself, but that's, that's my position. I think it is the most influential book in the, in the world. The impact of the King James Version, it's really difficult to accurate, accurately estimate. Indeed, some would say that this one book changed the whole world. Uh, now, whether you accept that or not, 
I would argue that we don't know how many millions or perhaps billions of people who have had their lives changed in a spiritual sense by this most important of books. Now, this is going to be a little bit controversial, but this is also my personal belief. Um, whether you're a critic of colonialism or not, I also argue that at least during the age of um, European expansionism, colonialism, everywhere the Europeans went, and especially the Brits, the Bible went with them. So, I mean, you only have to look at the Puritans who arrived in America with the KJB under their arm. Uh, the gospel was spread worldwide by the Brits, and for the most part, the most common Bible in their possession, and in English, was the King James Version. So where the explorers and the colonists went, there also went the King James Bible. Um, and add to this, this is another little bit of extra, um, that many people around the whole world were taught their English from the King James Bible. So I think that's something that we have acknowledged. But it's not just the spiritual or the religious realm that we can talk about. Its influence on literature, art, law, science. Um, and even though many of us now live in a post-Christian cultures, we live in post-Christian era and post-Christian cultures, certainly here uh, in Australia, places like Australia, New Zealand, uh, that I know personally a lot about. Um, these are post-Christian cultures. Um, and even though that's a fact, uh, we cannot deny the influence of this book. I want to read something here, uh, and I'll post this link when I post the show notes, but um, scientists too, as well as the liter literary giants, found their awestruck vision of the universe in this Bible. When Samuel Morse sent his first revolutionary telegraph message in 1844, it quoted the book of Numbers in the King James English, and it said, What hath God wrought? Historians sometimes use that phrase to encapsulate the ecstatic spirit of joy in discovery uh, that characterized 19th century America, but the innovation was rooted in that ancient English-speaking past. Well, not ancient, because really it's post... Uh, sorry, it's really early modern, but this is what this guy's saying. Politically, too, the language of the 1611 Bible is bound up with the evolving discourse in freedom uh, in Britain and its Commonwealth, but above all in the American colonies and the later United States. John Winthrop famously envisaged a city upon a hill. As the Liberty Bell proclaims, quoting the King James translation of Leviticus, proclaim freedom throughout the land. And the prophetic vision of Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King and other radical reformers were almost infallibly framed in the language of the King James Version. The dreams they had owed their shape to the visionary translators of 1611. If, generally, Scripture speaks to us, then specifically, the King James Bible spoke to America. One more quote here. Uh, this is from Victor Hugo. And Victor Hugo said, England has two books, the Bible and Shakespeare. England made Shakespeare, but the Bible made England. Now, before I throw it to you, I just want to finish on this bit here, uh, Nathan. You know, speak to the wider audience, whether you've ever opened a King James Bible uh, or not, there is no other book, or for that matter, really, nothing else in this whole world has influenced the English language more than the King James Version. I've said a lot here, Nathan, but am I being too bold? Am I going over the top here a bit? What do you think? Would you agree? Oh, I would agree wholeheartedly. I don't think you're going over the top at all. I think you laid a very wonderful um, case out for, you know, 
why the King James Bible is uh, it shaped our uh, definitely shaped our nation, our society, you know, uh, art, um, politics, uh, religion, literature. Um, uh, President Ronald Reagan said, and he said this specifically of the King James Bible. Um, and I may have I have a quote later that's a little bit more lengthy that I might if we have time, I might read it. But um, where I can prove that he said this about the King James Bible, he said of the many influences that have shaped the United States into a distinctive nation and people, none may be said to be more fundamental and enduring than the Bible. And he was 100 percent talking about the King James Bible. Um, so, yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with you. I, I mean, it, it, it's the most historically accurate book we have preserved from antiquity it is the best-selling book of all time the most read book the most gifted book the most translated book and interestingly enough it's the most stolen book in the whole world um you know which is kind of kind of kind of interesting um i believe it's the seed that birthed america because the word of god is the seed of freedom you know and any any people uh, who are enslaved um who would read the bible uh, would eventually uh, gain their freedom you know you look at you look at uh, israel you look at america um, when God's word uh, reigned in the hearts of the people, freedom also rang throughout the land. So I don't think you're you're overstating it at all. Um, let's let's drill down into the topic that we want to talk about today, specifically, you know, the impact on language. So I know that you have done a bit of study. I know you know a lot about the King James Bible, obviously, but I know you've done a bit of study on this in particular. So can you walk us down that path um, specifically about the impact on on the language? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, if you don't mind, let me begin with a quote. And I'm going to kind of put, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, I don't expect you to know who this is. I don't expect you to know who, who said this, but I, I would enjoy a guess um, because I think he kind of captures how uh, our language is affected so much by the King James Version. Um, here's the quote. It says, forgive me, spirit of science. But he asks, how on earth can anyone who cares about language be so ignorant and sensitive as not to appreciate the magnificent tones of the KJV. He continues, again, freely quoting King Jamesism. If my words fall on stony ground, if you pass me by as a voice crying in the wilderness, be sure your sin will find you out. Between us, there is a great goal fixed, and you are a thorn in my flesh. We have come to the parting of the ways. I fear it is a sign of the times. Do you know who said that? No, I don't know, but I, I noticed all of the King James isms in there. Yeah, that was the famous uh, atheist Richard Dawkins. You know, so it, even even the people who you know, even the English speaking avowed enemies of the God of the God of the Bible, uh, recognize the impact it's had on our language, um, yes. which is just you know fascinating to me that it is. Uh, I don't think you can overstate the impact it's had uh, on the world, um, and especially not on the English speaking people. Um, you know, it's, I, I hear people all the time also say, you know, they, we talk about the King James and go, oh, well, that was written for the people of that day with their, with their verbiage. But today we need something where it's a little easier to understand. But that, that's a, that's a great mistake because it wasn't, you know, in a period of rapid linguistic change, the translators avoided contemporary idioms, tending instead toward forms that were already slightly archaic, like verily, and it came to pass. The pronouns thee and thou and you are constantly consistently used as singular and plural respectively, even though by this time you, you was often found as singular in general English use, especially when addressing a superior uh, as evident, for example, in Shakespeare. And that was uh, taken uh, from a source, uh, the textual history of the King James Bible from Cambridge. I, I just jump in there and say, I, I think I agree 
um, because at, at this in this period when it was written, um, the the English language was in a bit of a fluid state. Um, so there was, uh, they could have chosen to go any way that they, oh, I don't mean to say any way they like, but they could have chosen any way to go, but they went with some of the words that you have said there, rightly, that are, um, may, you know, maybe somewhat archaic. And I think the reason they went for that, and this is my opinion, but the King James Version is a, it's a word for word, sense for sense translation. So I think that's why, uh, if you wanted to in English, really um, deliver God's word to somebody, um, somebody, anybody that can understand English. I think this is the way to do it because uh, we might say, oh man, I don't know what you say. It's a little bit difficult, but you're going to get a, a better sense of the, uh, the, the meaning because of the work that they did, like I said, for this word for word, sense for sense type of translation. But sorry to interrupt there. I just had to say, I, I, I agree, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's just uh, the King James Bible is just, um, you know, it really elevated the English language at the time and still does today. And and people tell me, you know, as a minister, people you know, they come to me and I say, hey, read this. And they'll say, well, I can't understand the King James Bible. And I say, um, you know, kind of like Mark Twain, don't understand the parts, you know, don't worry about the parts you don't understand. Worry about the parts you do understand. Um, as you read through the Bible, God is a good father and he does not show you something you're not ready for. And anyone who reads through the Bible, anybody can understand John 3, 16. And, um, you know, so it's just, um, it's, 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 it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, you know, it's, it's the, it's the, the, one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given to mankind. And, um, you know, I have a book, we're talking about, um, all the phrases that we use, uh, commonly. And I have a book here in front of me written by William, uh, D Mayo. He is a former vice president of Caterpillar. He retired in 2008 and he was a, actually a customer of mine at the, at the Ford dealership. And, uh, he wrote a book and gave it to me. The title of the book is that's in the Bible question mark, uh, scriptures, user-friendly impact on everyday conversation. And in the book, he gives over 200 examples of common phrases. We still use today in some form, uh, that have their roots in the King James Bible, kind of like what Richard Dawkins was referring to. Um, and let me read a short little paragraph, uh, from the preface of, uh, this book that gives some examples. He said, today our written and verbal language is seasoned with hundreds of colorful expressions lifted directly from the pages of scripture. Newspapers quote it in the headlines. Advertisements use biblical quotes to lure customers and you and I use biblical casual, the Bible casually in everyday speech. We will examine many such phrases in this book. Everyday expressions voiced from the corporate boardroom to the schoolyard playground will be presented and traced to their original biblical roots. Um, phrases we use today, you know, is, and I'll just give you some of the ones because he had over, he had over 200 in this book, but you know, here's some of the ones we hear all the time. Uh, the apple of my eye. Uh, I'm at my wits end. Uh, forbidden fruit. Uh, crystal clear. Uh, burning the midnight oil. Uh, going to the dogs. Love is blind. Rise and shine. Reap what you sow. Thick skin. You know, if you like the apple, the apple of my eye is found in Deuteronomy 32.10. You know, I, I use that. I've used that before. I'm at my wit's end. Um, Psalm 107.27, caught in the act. John 8.4. Um, there's just, I could just go on and on. I don't know how many of these you want me to list, but uh, there's so many of these that um, th the whole book is just filled with them and kind of how we would use them in the normal everyday language and then how it was used in the Bible. Yeah. Right. I'm, can I can I throw a couple for you? Because um, I've got a couple here as well. So you, you know, he he quotes over two hundred. Because I think there's like um, there's about two hundred and fifty seven to be exact. 
um, phrases uh, in the English language. It's more than any other single source, including the works of Shakespeare, by the way. So, you know, I think you mentioned Thorn in the Side. And um, did you mention The Fly in the Ointment? Because I think that's a good one. A lot of people still use that one today. Yeah, I did mention that one, but yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So a, a couple I want to give you is um, like um, we got one from Job nineteen twenty eight. The root of the matter. An example would be, you know, um, I ask questions until I reach the root of the matter. Um, it was the dog that had stolen the meat from the table or something like that. You know, turning the world upside down from Acts seventeen six. Another one that I've noticed, I've noticed personally. Uh, because I love music, and I notice this theme is used a lot in music, Nathan, um, East of Eden. Um, now, it's a phrase from um, John Steinbeck's novel, and, you know, there's movies, there's novels, but there's also a lot of songs that mention this idea of being East of Eden, and that's from Genesis chapter 4. Another one <clears throat> from music um, is uh, To Everything There's a Season, the famous song Turn, Turn by the Birds uh, from Ecclesiastes 3.1. Um, and it means that every activity has its time to happen. And as they sing in the song and the Bible talks about birth, death, laughter, crying, all those sorts of things. Um, another one, uh, the skin of my teeth. So, you know, you, when you just make something, you just get there on time. It's the skin of my teeth. Uh, that's from Job 19. A broken heart. Lots of songs, movies, uh, novels, broken heart. Uh, Psalm 34. Eat, drink and be merry. Now, a lot of us, um, in the modern postmodern world, we'll use that to mean lots of different things, but it is actually biblical from Ecclesiastes 8. Oh, another one, seeing eye to eye from Isaiah 52, uh, you know, it means, you know, we see eye to eye, we agree on something. And I noticed that in, uh, in the New Testament where it's used for, I think it's used uh, as face to face, but in the, uh, the Greek world, it was mouth to mouth. Stoma estoma, uh, but face to face, eye to eye, when we actually agree on something. Another common one, and you think, oh, well, yeah, was that really from the Bible? But this one is interesting. From time to time, uh, Ezekiel 4.10. I don't want to steal them all because I know there's some you want to talk about. So I'm going to hand it back to you. But I just want to throw those things in, especially the ones that I know personally that stand out to me. That East of Eden one catches me a fair bit. I go, yeah, that's the Bible. But anyway, back to you, Nathan. Sure. You know, there's just, there's just so many. I mean, uh, I hear, you hear people say an eye for an eye all the time. I'm not sure they know what it means, but they use it a lot. You know, it's found in Exodus 21, 24. It's also found in Deuteronomy 15, 16, and 17. Um, you know, caught in the act. Um, you know, that's that's uh, that's in the Bible. Um, John 8, 4. Uh, days are numbered, you know, Psalm 90, verse 12 wash my hands of it, you know, like, you know, Pontius Pilate, when he washed his hands, uh, you know, I washed my hands of this, um, written in stone, of course, you know, with the Ten Commandments in Exodus 31, 18, and Exodus 24, 12, is it talking, you know, God's hand, written in stone, uh, that you see the writing on the wall, um, you know, it's, I think that's, that's one uh, that gets used quite a bit from Daniel 5, 5, you know, I think, uh, turn the other cheek, Matthew 5, 39, uh, or he took me under his wing. You know, a lot of times that's used, in, you know, in business. You know, uh, that's that's one that, you know, I've I've used before. Uh, Matthew twenty three thirty seven, and it's also found in Psalm ninety one four through five. Vo a voice crying in the wilderness. I think um, Dawkins actually re referred to that one, which is uh, Matthew three three. And um, I don't know if we have time for. It's kind of a lengthy quote from Ronald Reagan, but Ronald Reagan, born in nineteen eleven, became the forty president of the United States. And here's what he said. He said, indeed, 
It is an incontrovertible fact that all the complex and horrendous questions confronting us at home and worldwide have their answer in that single book. What would you say if someone decided that Shakespeare's play, Charles Dickens' novels, or the music of Beethoven could be rewritten and improved? Writing in a journal of the alternative Richard Hanser, author of The Law and the Prophets and Jesus, What Manner of Man Is This?, have called attention to something that is more than a little mind-boggling. It is my understanding that the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, has been the best-selling book in the entire history of printing. Now there has been an attempt to improve it. I say another because there have been several fairly recent efforts to, quote, make the Bible more readable and understandable, unquote. But as Mr. Hansard so eloquently says, for more than three and a half centuries, its language and its images have penetrated more deeply than the general culture of the English-speaking world has been more dearly treasured than anything else ever put on paper. He then quotes the irreverent H.L. Mencken, who spoke of it as a purely literary work and said it was probably the most beautiful piece of writing in any language. They were, of course, speaking of the authorized version, the one that came into being when the England of King James was scoured for translators and scholars. It was a time when the English language had reached its peak of richness and beauty. Now we are to have the Good News Bible, which will be, in quote, the natural English of everyday adult conversation. Well, I'm sure the scholars and clergymen supervising by the American Bible Society were sincere and dude with the thought that they were taking religion to the people with their Good News Bible. But I can't help feeling we should instead be talking, taking the people to religion and lifting them with the beauty of the language that has outlived the centuries. Mr. Hansard has quoted from both the St. James Version and the Good News Bible some well-known passages for us to compare. A few thousand years ago, Job said, how forcible are right words. The new translators would have him saying, honest words are convincing. That's only for openers. There's a passage, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. It is, is it really an improvement to say the wiser you are, the more worries you have, the more you know, the more it hurts? In the New Testament, according to Matthew, we read the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way. The good news version translates that into someone is shouting in the desert, get the road ready. It sounds like a straw boss announcing lunch hours over. The hauntingly beautiful 23rd Psalm is, is the same in both versions for a few words. The Lord is my shepherd. But instead of continuing with, I shall not want, we're supposed to say, I have everything I need. The Christmas story has undergone some modernizing that one can hardly call an improvement. The wondrous words, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, has become, don't be afraid, I'm here with good news for you. The sponsors of the good news version boast that their Bible is an easy to read as the morning newspaper, and so it is. But do readers of the daily news find themselves moved to wonder, quote, at the gracious words which proceed out of his mouth, unquote. Mr. Hansard suggests that sadly the tinkering and general horsing around with the sacred text will no doubt continue as pious drudges try to get it right. It will not dawn on them that it has already been gotten right. And he says, this is Ronald Reagan. Thanks for listening in his own voice. I just thought that was an amazing quote. Yeah, that is. Um, and I have to confess, I haven't come across that one before. And I've done, uh, as you know, a fair bit of research into these things. I was going to say, um, see, the, the issue there is that, uh, go back to what I said earlier, 
the King James Version is a word-for-word, sense-for-sense, um, and you're going to get closer to the true meaning of what God is saying to us. Um, with these other um, uh, versions, especially like the King, uh, sorry, the Good News Version, in my words, they just water it down so much. The only argument I have for the use of one of those is if, if you've got someone who's not a very good reader or isn't uh, fully intellectually capable, then something like that might be used might be useful for them. But my argument would be that if you're intellectually um, fully capable, then I think you should be reading a far better version because it really does water it down. But like I say, uh, if a person has um, you know a lower understanding or poor reading skills, that might be somewhere to start. Right. Yeah. I just wanted to actually show that it's not just uh, Christians who believe this book has impacted the world. There, there, there are there are totally non-believers who have said, man, this book has indeed changed the world. And uh, it is the King James Bible. Um, I had a gentleman um, online send me a message. Um, his name was Thomas. And uh, he, he quoted this. It says, the superiority of the English expressed in the KJB against all other English translations build the case on proof from English grammar, etymology, and linguistics. In the 1998 concise Oxford Companion to the English Language, Tom MacArthur one of the world's foremost experts on the English language, edited the entire work. He concluded that the English of the King James Bible developed as its own form of English as biblical English. This raises huge issues for the crowd claiming the KJB is archaic and so forth. The English of the KJB is not Old English. It is not Modern English. It is not Elizabethan or Jacobean English. It is a sibling of Elizabethan and Jacobean English, sharing only a parental lineage of English while also containing a Greek and Hebrew heritage. I thought that was a pretty good quote. It is a good one. I've got one here as well. I don't know if you come across this now. I'm pretty sure the Noah Webster Dictionary, it's more American than it is uh, English or, you know, the Commonwealth countries. But um, the dictionary maker Noah Webster once said, the language of the Bible has no inconsiderable influence in forming and preserving our national language. He's referring to American language. More recently, however, theologian Alistair McGrath, McGrath now I've used in my uh, this series, I used a lot of uh, Alistair McGrath's work. I'll just give the title here. What was it called? Oh, In the Beginning. Oh, how could I forget that? Yeah, so... McGrath's In the Beginning, The Story of the King James Bible and How It Changed a Nation, a Language and a Culture. Brilliant book. Get a hold of it. But um, So I'll go back to the quote. More recently, however, theologian Alistair McGrath proclaimed it as a model English text, which can be studied as a landmark in the history of the English language and is to be seen as a major influence on English literature. Um, so I only dragged that one out because here you have a, an American dictionary maker um, saying in American English how important this is. And then we have this McGrath guy, uh, who is a theologian backing that up in for the English themselves. Um, you know, the English text. All these things help make it clear of the argument that you and I are, um, creating or making here that, um, the impact on the language, I keep going back to you can't measure it. Um, some people would say you can. There's 257 specific sayings. But what I want to do is I want to give you some sayings that have made it into our language that come from the Bible, but they are not specific. 
uh, word for word quotes. I'll give you a couple here. Uh, we have, uh, and, and, and people will go, oh, yes, I use that. I know that one. So we've got um, As Old as the Hills. We have Baptism of Fire, Bite the Dust, um, Can a Leopard Change Its Spots, Holier Than Thou, In the Twinkling of an Eye, No Rest for the Wicked, Sour Grapes, I think we mentioned that one earlier, Sign of the Times. Yeah, um, there, there's a bunch that are, are alluded to, but they're not exact quotes, you know, or like Drop in the Bucket, uh, Go the Extra Mile, Give Credit Where Credit's Due. Um, a lot of these, you know, are, are just uh, Love is Blind. Um, there's just so many that, you know, a leopard doesn't change its spots. There's just so many that um, that we could just, like I said, there's, I got 207 in this, in this book, and, and you said there's like probably 245. It's it, it's just, you know, the King James Bible literally is is everywhere. Um, it permeates our society. We have a church church bell in our church tower from the 1800s, and there's an inscription in it um, from Psalm 8411. It says, the Lord God is a sun and shield. And that's directly from the King James Bible. And no one sees it because it's in a bell tower, but it's up there inscribed on the bell. But every year, millions of people visit the Liberty Bell and they see the famous crack and they read the words, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof in Leviticus 25.10. And, uh, you know, so the impact, I mean, I would, I would make the claim that the Bible made English great, not vice versa. Because the impact of the King James Bible, I mean, if you, if you look at it, English-speaking people, there's 70 countries that that's their official language. And since, since English is now, without a doubt, I would say considered the universal language. I mean, I've been, I've been a lot of places, I've uh, been in different countries, and I've never had trouble communicating with somebody in English. And I would argue that is because of the King James Bible. It has impacted every nation, culture, religion, and philosophy. You know, art. You look at art and the painters who were inspired by to paint these pictures of Joan and the Whale and, and, and uh, the, the Virgin Birth. Uh, music, you know, arguably one of the most famous compositions ever in the history of the world is Handel's Messiah. Well, Charles, Charles Jennings compiled the text from the King James Bible. When you, I just went and, and, and heard the Messiah this last uh, Christmas, and it's just wonderful because you can just follow along with the King James Bible. It's beautiful. And there's, there's some beautiful modern-day instrumental music too, guitar-based. Um, there's one that, that you just made me think of it, um, The Messiah Will Come Again. I think it's seven, eight, nine, ten minutes of just, it's, it's a bit heavy for a lot of people, but beautiful guitar music. And um, you know that that's where, where that came from. And I, I refer to music a fair bit because I listen to a lot of um, modern music, let's call it that. And um, the language is, it's always there. And whether these guys and girls, you know, realize what they were doing at the time, but the language is always there. They're using it all the time. And um, going back to a bit more historical, as I said earlier, everywhere the Brits and the Irish went, you know, they had that. Uh, so I'm talking about their Catholics and Protestants and all of them. Everywhere they went around the world when they were colonizing the globe, they took the King James Bible with them and they spread the good news. Now, I will repeat, so I don't want to be misquoted, whether that's a good or a bad thing, you know, that you can, you can make up your own mind. But the fact is the gospel was spread by colonialism. And that's why so many of these countries that we can talk about, that's why they speak English now. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's permeated our society and in our, in our world. It really has. Uh, literature, I was going to go on to literature um, too. You know, C.S. Lewis, um, who, who had been an atheist, he became a Christian and he lectured on, the literary impact of the authorized version. You know, he called it the treasure house of the English prose. 
it, you know, it was the inspiration for, you know, part of the inspiration of the Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Um, I think, you know, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, you know, obviously you can see it there. And the Grapes of Wrath contains numerous biblical references. So uh, it, it, not only literature, but also in our movies, you know, I mean, it's just it's everywhere if, if you look for it. Baylor University uh, had a magazine entitled How the King James Bible Changed the World. Um, you know, it, it doesn't say how the, the King James Bible changed uh, America, you know, because it, it was really the birth of America uh, is how it changed the world. And uh, they say no, no serious student of literature in English can neglect the impact of the 1611 Bible. And that is equally true for any century from the 17th through the 20th. All the great conical authors are immersed in that Bible, even or especially those who reject its fundamental religious message. To put it ironically, the Bible they reject is the King James 1611, which created the literary air we breathe. The King James language informs and inspires American literature from Herman Melville and Nathaniel Hawthorne through Ernest Hemingway and William Faulkner. It has its special power in African-American tradition, too, from Frederick Douglass through Alice Welker. I mean, just it's just amazing, you know, that, uh, you know, it's just a, it is acknowledged that the King James Bible changed the world. Yes. Yes. What I want to ask you before we finish up here. Would you mind sharing your personal story about the King James Version? Because I, I have one too that I'm happy to share, but I wanted to ask you, what's your personal attraction to this book? I guess that's the best way I can ask you. Well, my personal attraction to uh, the King James Bible uh, is Psalm 34, 6. Um, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Um, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I was very fortunate. I had a, a very loving mother, a very loving father. My dad was a, a pastor, a preacher. Uh, he was a, the greatest man I ever knew. And uh, he taught me the Bible from the time I was little. We learned uh, to, to memorize the King James Bible and, uh, you know, learn to, uh, to go to church. Um, but, you know, going to church and being born into a Christian family does not make you a Christian. And there was a time in my life when I, I came to the point where I realized I was uh, going to church. I was a member of the church, but I was not in the church as far as in Christ Jesus. And, you know, there's a time when I kind of came to the end of myself. And uh, like a lot of people I think have done, I kind of let the Bible fall open where it would. I've heard people call it Bible bingo. Well, I don't, I don't know about that, but I know that God uh, is in control. And my Bible fell open to a, a verse called Psalm. You know, it fell open to Psalms. I think there's a reason Psalms is in the middle of the Bible. And I think a lot of people have, have kind of done the same thing I did. And they find that, that there was somebody that, that knew what they felt and there was help in time of trouble. And when my Bible fell open, my eyes fell on this verse. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. After I would prayed, Lord, can I even be saved? And God says, yes, you can. And, uh, you know, and then all the Bible verses you, you read you know, where the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, you know, when you believe uh, God, you know, because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why it's so important to have a Bible um, that you believe is God's very word. Uh, and, I, and I'll give you a quote. Um, Dennis Prager, he's not a Christian. He's a Jew, but he understands the importance of the word of God being the word of God. He says there is no comparison between God commanded and Moses or anyone else commanded. If I believed the Ten Commandments were written by men, I would not have honored my parents as much as I did during periods of emotional ambivalence. 
Those who believe God is the source of the Torah's commandments are far more likely to obey them than those who believe they are all man-made. It's impossible, even nonsensical, to claim you can trust in the Bible that you insist has mistakes. And my dad, who was a born-again, Bible-believing, great pastor, said when he held up his Bible, this is the very Word of God. It doesn't contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Perfect. And there's power in that. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And and I have to take God at his word. And if I don't have God's word, what do I have? And it's just so important. You know, I just love the King James Bible because I don't have to worry about it. I've had people throw questions at me. You wouldn't believe the questions. I don't think there's a verse in the Bible that men have not doubted. And Satan was the first one to start that in the in the in the in the in the garden. He said, yea, hath God said, you know, so uh, my love of the King James Bible and impact that it's had on my life. It brought faith into my life faith into salvation because it told me about Jesus and it came from such a source of of trust that I don't doubt the Bible says let God be true and every man a liar and I found that to be very true and if I believe for one moment that man wrote um, the Bible I understand they penned it but the Bible says holy men of God spake as they were moved Um, there's a big difference between just man penning it because I talk to people today and say I've got the word of God and they said man wrote that well, that's, that's just the devil again, going back in the garden being saying, yea, hath God said. Uh, but praise the Lord, I can hold up my King James Bible and said, this is the very word of God. There's no mistakes in it. There's no errors in it. It's perfect. And every time somebody show me an error, I can show them that it's not an error. God is true and man is a liar. So, you know, the, the impact of the King James Bible on my life is salvation through Jesus Christ and being able to trust God at his word. All right. Well, um, Nathan, thanks for sharing that. Um, but uh, thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I just wonder if you'd come back again sometime. We'll have another chat about something maybe in the future. I'll tell you why I'm saying that. I am getting a lot of emails still, even years after uh, I finished the series, let's just say. I finished it on episode 22. I never thought I'd come back and do episode 23, but... Um, maybe if we get another topic in the future, I could have you back. But I just really want to thank you for your time. Um, and I appreciate that and for your input and, you know, for your obvious love for this uh, most special of all books, let me say, in the universe. So, um, Nathan, thank you for coming on board A History of the King James podcast. Oh, well, it was my pleasure. And uh, yes, I'd be I'd be happy anytime uh, you have room for me. I'd be happy to uh, come on again. So I just appreciate the opportunity um, to, to just share that, uh, I believe the King James Bible and, and I love the Lord and, um, I'm thankful to have a brother in Christ, uh, that, uh, shares uh, a passion for, uh, the word of God. All right. Well, thank you. And we'll leave it there. God bless. Well, that's it for another episode. You know, it was during the edit stage that I was reminded of a few more rock music references with regard to the use of English inspired by the King James Bible. Now there's so many, but these are just some that came to me while I was editing the show, you know. Um, the one that speaks to me personally is Midnight Oil. Now, um, there was a covers band that I was in back in the day, and uh, our biggest claim to fame was opening for Midnight Oil, so that one I'm never going to forget, I guess. Um, you know, there's a couple of Brisbane bands. One was called Caught in the Act, Caught in the Act, you know, and another one's called Wits End, and I think there's several bands from around the world called Wits End. Um, New Zealand Muso, he's passed now, but Graham Brazier, he put out an album called East of Eden, which along with a tune called East of Eden, also contains a tune called Winter of Discontent, which is a line from Shakespeare's play Richard III, and it goes, Now is the winter of our discontent. 
another obvious one, I think I mentioned this during the show, was, you know, the birds, turn, turn, turn. The lyrics from that are lifted almost word for word from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, like I said, there are so many rock references. Now, I don't know how many of them do realise that they're using the language of the King James Version of the Bible. Now, obviously, that one there, turn, 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 um, they, they would clearly know what's that, what that's about. But anyway, that's enough of that for now. Um, if you want to hear more episodes of A History of the King James Bible podcast, just go to my website, www.likeflintradio.com, one word, likeflintradio.com www.likeflintradio.com that's all one word likeflintradio.com there you'll find every episode of a history of the king james bible podcast if you want to email me um, you can hit me up through the website the email address is there just use the contact button but anyway uh, that's it for now i am your host garth noise and until next time if there is a next time god bless and hooroo